Hello, and welcome to Secret Cities. I'm Georgia, and this is my podcast, Vittoriosity. Today, I'm going to be taking an in-depth look at Michelangelo and the story of the Sistine Chapel. I'll be looking at his stormy relationship with his patron, Pope Julius II, the difficulties and triumphs he encountered when painting the Sistine Chapel frescoes, as Irving Stone called it, the agony and the ecstasy. And I'll be explaining some of the paintings in the chapel. In order for you to follow my explanations, you might want to have a look at the 3D images of the Sistine online provided by the Vatican. You can go to www.vatican.va forward slash various forward slash capelle, that's C-A-P-P-E-L-L-E forward slash Sistina, that's S-I-S-T-I-N-A underscore VR. Or one of my most prized possessions is a picture book given to me by my friends in Rome called Michelangelo and Raphael in the Vatican. I highly recommend you splash out on a copy on your own visit to Vatican City. Michelangelo is one of the greatest human beings ever to have lived, and I believe his artistic contribution to the world is unsurpassed. He's one of my heroes. He was a legend in his own time and is truly one of the titans in the story of human development and achievement. To visit the Sistine Chapel, you have to go to the Vatican Museums. The chapel is at the end of the tour. There is no doubt in my mind that the best way to make the most of your visit to the Vatican Museums is to take a guided tour. Book in advance in order to skip the sometimes three to four hour queue to get in. The museums are vast, with nine miles of galleries and so many pieces of art that if you spent 60 seconds looking at each one, you'd be there for about 12 years. A tour guide can help you to navigate this vast treasure trove of ancient and Renaissance splendour. Generations of popes have contributed to the Vatican palaces, but the pope who really began the rebirth or Renaissance of Rome was Pope Julius II, known as Il Papa Terrible, or the Warrior Pope. Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere was elected pope in 1503. He took the papal name of Julius, reminiscent, of course, of the mighty Caesar, and it was a name he lived up to. He led troops into battle to reclaim lost papal states such as Bologna, and he wanted Rome to reflect the fact that it was the centre of power in Italy, and indeed the world. In 1503, Rome was in a fairly shabby state of disarray, and Julius was ambitious to ensure that Rome not only rivalled Florence, the cradle of the Renaissance, but surpassed it. It was for that reason that he commissioned the brightest and best architects and artists of the day, Donato Bramante to design the new St. Peter's Basilica, Raphael Sanzio to paint his private apartments, and Michelangelo Buonarroti to paint the chapel built by and named for his Della Rovere uncle, Pope Sixtus IV. Michelangelo was born in 1475, two years after building work had started on the Sistine Chapel. The side panels depict the life of Moses of the Old Testament on one side and the life of Christ of the New Testament on the other. They were completed by an older generation of artists, such little-known names as, oh, you know, Sandro Botticelli. The original ceiling was painted a traditional lapis lazuli blue with gold stars. By 1508, Michelangelo was 33 years old and had already established himself as one of the leading sculptors of the day with his masterpieces of David in Florence and the Pietà, which is housed in St Peter's in Rome. 
Rafael Sanzio, the 25-year-old protégé from Urbino, had established himself as a uniquely gifted painter in oils and fresco. Julius wanted the two leading lights of the age to paint for him. They were rivals, and by throwing them into direct competition with each other, Julius got arguably their best and most enduring work out of them. However, Raphael was a proven painter. Michelangelo considered himself first and foremost a sculptor and an architect. He'd loathed his mentor in the art of fresco, Domenico Gerlandaio, and had had his nose broken in a brawl with another possibly jealous student. He was very self-conscious about it, and it remained bent out of shape for the rest of his life, both physically and metaphorically. Michelangelo also resented Julius for pulling him off the major project to sculpt his papal tomb, for which he'd already sourced the marble in Carrara. He felt it was a punishment, and to show him up next to the young upstart Raphael. Perhaps it was this resentment and fear of being outshone that motivated Michelangelo to not only paint one of the wonders of the world on that ceiling, but forever revolutionise the way frescoes were painted, and set a new standard for what could be achieved in painting. So... As Raphael set up shop in the papal apartments, Michelangelo was faced with a seemingly impossible challenge, to paint a ceiling that was 20 metres off the ground. First, he had to find a way to reach it. Secondly, Julius had commissioned him to paint the apostles on the ceiling panels. Michelangelo refused the commission, thinking it a poor idea, unless he was given free rein to paint what he wanted. Indeed, he ran away from Rome twice before he returned to Rome, publicly wearing a noose around his neck, a rather courageously audacious gesture, and was basically incarcerated in the Sistine Chapel for the next four years. To reach the ceiling, Michelangelo first built a wooden scaffold. It covered a third of the chapel and could be moved along on wheels as he progressed down the ceiling. This was a tremendous feat in itself. Underneath the great scaffold, he hung a giant canvas sheet to prevent the wet paint dripping on the marble cosmetesque floor, and also to hide exactly what he was painting. As we shall see, Michelangelo the rebel had many a secret in his mighty work. One of the great myths is that Michelangelo painted lying on his back. Not so. He painted standing up to allow for more freedom and breadth of movement. This meant he spent four years arching his neck and torso backwards. It was agony for him, and he suffered with back pains and migraines for the rest of his life as a result. He even drew a cartoon of himself next to a poem he wrote about it. The ceiling is a riotous blaze of images, depicting scenes from the Old Testament, the ancestors of Christ, the prophets, the Greek sibyls, the patti, little pudgy, wingless cherubs, and the ignudi, the heroic, muscular male nudes that frame each panel and are clearly inspired by ancient sculptures. You'll have seen many as you wander the Vatican galleries. They are mostly surrounded by acorns. These acorns serve two purposes. The oak tree was the coat of arms of the Della Rovere family, so it is a direct reference to them, a seemingly flattering gesture. However, they are also, of course, extremely phallic, which Michelangelo revels in an example of how Michelangelo frequently gets his two birds with just one stone. As you look up at the ceiling, you'll first be overwhelmed with just how much is up there, and secondly, be struck by the fact that the figures are enormous, filling each panel. Except for three panels at the back of the chapel as you enter.
These three panels were the first Michelangelo painted, and they depict the story of Noah, the drunkenness of Noah, the flood, and the sacrifice of Noah. They are different from the other panels. Michelangelo spent an entire year painting these first three panels, and just three years painting the rest of the ceiling. What happened? At the end of the first year, Michelangelo clambered down from the scaffold, removed the canvas awning, looked up, and realised that all the figures in the panels were too small. You could barely make them out from the floor. There are over 50 figures in the painting of the flood. Equally, the project was going to take at least 20 years if he continued to paint like that. As Albert Einstein once said, however, in the middle of difficulty lies opportunity. And it was from out of this difficulty that the rest of the Sistine Chapel ceiling was born. The figures become much bigger, filling each panel and enabling Michelangelo to paint with record-breaking speed and compose such iconic compositions as the creation of Adam. The frescoes are perfectly proportioned. No mean feat when you remember that the ceiling is vaulted. Michelangelo not only had to cope with the curvature of the ceiling, but create vast paintings with his face just inches away from the ceiling. And every single figure up there is anatomically accurate. Michelangelo was a master of the anatomy, having developed this skill rather morbidly by dissecting and sketching corpses whilst studying in Florence under the auspices of Lorenzo the Magnificent, Lorenzo de Medici, in his school, the Giardino di San Marco. Indeed, he gave us over 80 of our anatomical terms. The Garden of St Mark was a profoundly informative time for Michelangelo. He had access to ancient texts, pagan philosophical works, Christian, Judaic and Islamic. He was well versed in not only the Bible, but the Kabbalah and the Quran, as well as literature from the ancient Greco-Roman world. You can find all of these influences in his work, no more so than throughout the Sistine Chapel. While it was Julius who gave him the commission that has made him a legend through the ages, Michelangelo struggled to get fair pay from Il Papa Terrible. He also disagreed with many of Julius's practices, attitudes, treatment of others, namely things like the sale of indulgences, the treatment of the Jews. Michelangelo took his revenge all over the ceiling, as we shall see. First of all, I'll describe the layout of the ceiling. There are nine central panels depicting the story of creation. Starting closest to the altar, you have the separation of the light from the dark, then the creation of the sun, moon and plants. Next is the separation of the water from the land, the creation of Adam, the creation of Eve, and Adam and Eve's temptation and expulsion from the Garden of Eden. These Genesis frescoes are followed by the three scenes of Noah. For the four corners of the ceiling, called the pendentives, Michelangelo painted four iconic stories of Jewish victories over those who would destroy them. The punishment of Haman, the brazen serpent, Judith with the head of Holophanes, and David and Goliath. Along the sides of the chapel, arching over the windows, are the lunettes, and above them, the triangular spandrels. All of these depict the ancestors of Christ in family groups. In between these are giant portraits of the Old Testament prophets interspersed with the Greek sibyls. After recognising his initial error with the paintings of Noah and the Flood, Michelangelo redesigned his plan for the ceiling. The painting immediately above the altar of God separating the darkness from the light fills the entire panel. All of the paintings become much bigger and this enabled him to paint much more quickly. So in this first panel, 
Michelangelo's god is muscular, with a white beard and dressed in purple robes. Purple is the traditional colour of royalty, of course. The muscular torso and twist in the body is a direct inspiration from the Laocoon statue you'll have seen in the octagonal courtyard earlier on on your visit. God's arms are aloft and his face turned upwards. It's all almost as though Michelangelo's painted himself painting the ceiling. Most astoundingly of all, he painted this panel in a single day. In the next panel, the creation of the sun, moon and plants, God appears twice in the panel. With a ferocious look of concentration, he creates the sun and the moon on the right-hand side. On the left-hand side, he bends over to create the plants. This panel is directly above where the Pope would have stood at the altar. Remember Michelangelo's tempestuous relationship towards the Pope, the fact he wore a noose on his way to Rome. And position yourself there, as Julius would have been. Look up, and you'll see that Michelangelo's painted two moons on the ceiling. God's muscular and very well-defined bottom is mooning the Pope. What's fascinating about the next panel, the separation of the water from the land, is the way God and his cloak have been painted. Scholars have suggested that it is the cross-section of the right kidney. Michelangelo, the anatomical expert, funnily enough suffered from kidney stones all his life, and it seems he must have been aware of how the kidneys functioned, filtering the body's waste products in the blood and turning them into watery urine. The next and most iconic panel is the creation of Adam. Adam is lying languidly on the ground, one leg outstretched, the other bent. He leans on one arm with his hand furled up. The other is outstretched, the arm just leaning on his knee, and his hand limply hanging, the index finger just separated from the others. On the other side is the almighty figure of God, surrounded by a huge cloak in which nestle several wingless cherubs and even a womanly-looking figure who might just be Eve peering out from under his elbow and looking towards Adam. God's life-giving hand reaches towards Adam's limp, inert one, pointing his index finger purposefully towards Adam's. The fingers, against the background of an empty sky, have become the most iconic religious image anywhere in the world. They are not quite touching yet. This is the moment of creation just before Adam has been imbued with knowledge and free will. He is physically perfect, beautiful even, but his face has a rather vacant expression on it. And that's why. It is when God's finger, outstretched, collides with his that he will receive the spark of life and awaken. Bearing in mind God's about to imbue Adam with knowledge, let's have a closer look at that cloak filled with figures. Does it remind you of a body part? Well, let's have a think. Where do we store our knowledge? Yes, it turns out this composition of God and the cloak and even the other figures represents an anatomically accurate cross-section of the human brain. Next, Adam is put to sleep and we see the fully created Eve emerging from his side, hands raised in supplication to God, who in turn raises his hand in benediction. Interestingly, the stump of tree against which Adam is lying is shaped a bit like a cross, which becomes interesting as we look at the next panel, depicting original sin. 
The panel is divided into two by the tree of knowledge. Adam and Eve, young and rosy and vigorous in the Garden of Eden on the left, and old, withered and cast out on the right. Around the tree is coiled the serpent. However, it has a muscular and slightly androgynous but unmistakably female torso. The muscular arm reaches towards Eve, who has been distracted and interrupted from doing something. Eve's own very muscular arm reaches up and she has handed the fig. Eve is sitting on a rock. Adam is standing over her. Because of the interruption, she twists away from him. I shall leave it to your imagination as to what they'd been doing before the serpent interrupted them. The tree is a fig tree rather than a traditional apple tree. And this was a popular motif in the Renaissance. And it's also in keeping with the Jewish tradition. While Eve has been distracted by the serpent offering the forbidden fruit, in this case a fig, Adam himself is stretching for one. This in itself is interesting, because in the church tradition, it is Eve who is tempted, and Eve, not Satan, who in turn tempts Adam. Woman has been blamed for the fall of man, but in Michelangelo's depiction, they are both equally tempted away. Their sin is equal. This always moves me because Michelangelo has often been accused of misogyny. If you look at Eve's body, it is clearly a muscular male body with breasts. Indeed, she looks like a bodybuilder. True, Michelangelo used only male models. True, Michelangelo's own and at the time forbidden sexual preference was for men. However, this makes him homosexual, not a misogynist. And indeed, throughout his life, he developed close friendships with intellectual women of the age, particularly Vittoria Colonna and Felice della Rovere, Pope Julius II's daughter, who he later gifted the precious cartone, or cartoons, of the Sistine Chapel to. So, those are the main panels in the centre of the ceiling. Don't worry, I won't go into quite as much depth with all the lunettes and pendentives, but rather focus on just a few. Firstly, the lunettes depict the ancestors of Christ, Indeed, the whole ceiling depicts stories from the Old Testament, which is also the Jewish Torah. I've always found this humbling, moving and universal, given that anti-Semitism in Europe at this time was rife. By also including the Sibyls, interspersed with the prophets who figure in Christianity, Judaism and Islam, Michelangelo seems to be encompassing all of humanity in God's love and salvation, not merely the Christians. Well, this is really rather revolutionary, of course. Indeed, for a more in-depth read of Michelangelo's pro-Jewish sentiments, you can read a book called The Sistine Secrets by Rabbi Benjamin Blech and my friend and mentor, Roy Doliner. The largest of the prophets is Jonah, situated just above the altar. Five times life-size, he is absolutely vast. Next to him is a rather large fish. It is, of course, the story of Jonah and the whale, or in this case, a big juicy trout. Michelangelo liked to be accurate, so lacking a whale, he must have gone down to the fish market at the Esquiline Hill and picked up a nice large fish. Anyway, why has Michelangelo put Jonah here above the altar? Well, if you've listened to my podcast on the catacombs, you will recognise the link. Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights before being spat out or resurrected. 
Jesus of the New Testament was, of course, in his tomb for three days and three nights before they rolled the stone away, and there he wasn't. So Jonah is an Old Testament parallel story to the resurrection of the New Testament. In a Christian church, there is always a figure of Christ at the altar. This was Michelangelo's way of being able to stay true to his design, as well as to possibly be slightly subversive. The lunette to the left of the altar, as you're looking at it, it's labelled Aminadab. And the figure to the left is wearing yellow. On his arm, you can make out a yellow circle. Yellow was traditionally perceived as the colour of shame. And in Rome, Jewish people were made to wear these yellow markers, not unlike the way Hitler later branded the Jews with the Star of David. It is not obvious, and because of the kaleidoscopic plethora of images and colours on the ceiling, you would easily miss it, and no one did notice it. The prophet just above this image is Jeremiah, who prophesied the coming destruction of the world because of the sins of the nation. He is wearing muddy boots. Michelangelo famously rarely changed his boots, and you'll see those same boots on Raphael's painting of him in the famous School of Athens. Look closely at the visible part of his face, and you might think Michelangelo had hidden a self-portrait in Jeremiah. He is resting his chin in his hands, and both index fingers are pointing downwards. It is interesting, I think, that he is positioned immediately above where the Pope would stand. So several things are going on here. Michelangelo depicts himself as Jeremiah. Jeremiah points his accusing finger towards Pope Julius. Now, I mentioned the portrait of the prophet Zechariah in an earlier podcast. For those who missed it, here's the prophet at the very back of the chapel. It's at the back of the chapel as you enter, but in fact immediately above the papal entrance. He is wearing the orange and blue of the Della Rovere family, and is the prophet who preached universal tolerance. Both he and Jeremiah are considered prophets in Christianity, Judaism and Islam. But Zechariah is actually bald and bearded. He's actually a portrait of Pope Julius II himself. Julius, I am sure, would have been absolutely delighted to see himself up there, immediately above his own entrance to his family's chapel. There is a threefold message here. Firstly, it seems to be flattering the Pope, of course. But look closer and you'll see the two putty, or wingless cherubs, looking over his shoulder, and one of them is making a very rude hand gesture his thumb between his index and middle finger. This gesture was called giving someone the fig, the equivalent of flicking someone the bird. So that's clearly an insult, and a joke I'm positive Michelangelo would have privately enjoyed. However, on a third and more profound note, perhaps also this portrait of Zechariah is a message of, of hope, hope that Julius and the church of which he was head would one day be transformed and embrace the universal values of tolerance and compassion for all humanity. For all his hidden jokes and messages and insults, Michelangelo's is both a deeply spiritual work as well as an extraordinary artistic accomplishment. He is remembered as aloof and antagonistic and verging on arrogant. He painted alone, even on one occasion crushing his own paints. But, I think... Beneath his seeming arrogance and muddy boots was a sense of awe and humility for creation and a desire to reveal deep spiritual truths which frequently differed from Renaissance church practices. Michelangelo also 
just to throw aside the myth of his arrogance, once said, if people knew how hard I worked to get my mastery, it wouldn't seem so wonderful. Well, for me, not many people work as hard as Michelangelo did. I think his hard work and dedication is as inspiring as the art that he produced. The Sistine Ceiling was widely acknowledged as a masterpiece and heralded a revolution in the way frescoes could be done. Michelangelo had taken just four years to paint what would have taken ten men at least twenty years to paint. His muscular figures, especially of the ignudi surrounding the panels, look three-dimensional. They could literally jump out and dance around you. Michelangelo wrote proudly that good painting is the kind that looks like sculpture. This he certainly achieved in the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Now, in 1535, poor old Michelangelo was called back to the Vatican by Pope Paul III Farnese and commissioned to paint the back wall of the Sistine Chapel. This became the Last Judgment and took him six years. With just under 400 muscular male nudes on the wall, including a portrait of Tommaso Cavalieri, the love of Michelangelo's life, and John the Baptist sporting a camel-skin thong, a piece of modesty that was added after Michelangelo's death, there are, as you can tell, plenty more stories to tell you about, but I'll leave those for another podcast. There is a whole raft of literature out there for you to learn more about Michelangelo and the Sistine. Three books that I have enjoyed are The Pope's Ceiling by Ross King, the now slightly dated book by Irving Stone, The Agony and the Ecstasy, and as I mentioned earlier, The Sistine Secrets by Rabbi Benjamin Blech and my friend Roy Doliner. And of course, for tailor-made information about your all-important visit to the Vatican, do get in touch with us at toriosity.com. Thanks so much for listening, and ciao for now.